Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start closer to home here now with repeat violent offenders, the surge of crime on our streets, and the new data just released by the provincial government here now. So many violent, repeat, dangerous offenders being released back into the public, back onto the streets to commit even more crime. This is unreal. Even in cases where you have the crown prosecutor in the case asking the judge, do not let this person out. This person is a danger to the public. The judge letting them out anyway in about half the cases. In a lot of cases, they don't even ask for the incarceration, even if they are a violent repeat offender. There is no request to keep the person locked up in the first place. I got Eleanor Sturko standing by. First, let's have a listen to the Attorney General here. This is Nikki Sharma, BC Attorney General. She was on yesterday's show, and she here, she, here she is explaining her concerns. Crown Counsel, and this is our team of, of lawyers in BC, are asking for detention for public safety and, and to, main, to maintain confidence in the justice system. And in less than half the time, um, our judges are agreeing with that and detaining those, those criminals. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, BC United MLA, Eleanor Sturko, represents Surrey in the legislature, former Surrey police officer. Eleanor, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Talking about a song that keeps on repeating itself. Hey, the, the yeah, yeah. Natural Release Justice System is Yeah, no kidding. Real. Yeah, we keep talking about the same thing over and over again, and, and you've been ringing the alarm on this for months and months now. And I thought it was very interesting to see some of this data, some of these statistics come out yesterday about how many of these violent repeat offenders are still being released into the public. Your thoughts? Well, you know, even to hear our Attorney General, Nikki Sharma, say pretty much that this rests on the shoulders of judges, you know, is is absolutely uh, incorrect. Of course, the judge's decision-making has to play a role in it, but, you know, the fact that our BC Prosecution Service is only seeking remand in about half the cases just shows that our Attorney General's directive that she provided to them in November is ineffective. Right, because, and, and she told me this yesterday, that the government is concerned about these violent repeat offenders continuing to be released by the, by the system, so that they put out a special directive to Crown prosecutors. When you have a situation like that, ask for these, ask the judge to keep the person locked up, right? So is that, Absolutely. What are you, so what are you saying, that's not happening now? <laughs> Well, we see from their data. So on the last page, or I guess the two of two page, there's a bullet, and it says that in the, in the final box, at least this is a person who at least has one file dealing with a violent offense, at least one charge where they have not complied with court directions to uh, you know whatever their conditions were, and at least one outstanding warrant. So here is a person not only with a violent criminal history. They've shown that they're unwilling to abide by court conditions and they either fail to appear in court or have other subsequent crimes on their docket. And we see from the numbers provided by the BC Prosecution Service that they're only requesting detention in half those cases. This was something that was supposed to be a directive to the BC Prosecution Service that they would always consider these circumstances to be in the public interest, that we seek to have these individuals kept in custody. The other yeah. kind of side of it is that 
if you're sort of losing half your arguments about keeping these dangerous people in detention and, and the Crown was making that argument, are they reviewing to find out what types of arguments they're actually making in court when they're losing half the time? Yes. Yeah, why are they losing? Like, why are the judges saying no to these requests to keep these violent offenders locked up? Are they seized with adequate evidence? You know, um, I can tell you that in the case of violent repeat offenders, that the police, whether it's RCMP or municipal forces, keep very good investigations and oftentimes ongoing open investigations that just have subsequent charge after charge after charge, breach after breach, loaded onto a person's uh, court file. And there is a lot of information on people who then it's very shocking to see them not get held in custody. And so, you know, what is it? Are they actually reviewing to see what types of arguments are being made? And, you know, I, I don't want to be critical of our prosecutors uh, too harshly, because I do think that they work within, um, you know, a framework set out for them by our Attorney General. And I think the ultimate responsibility does lie with her and this NDP government. We don't want them, of course, it would be improper for them to interfere in individual prosecutions. But Let's be absolutely clear that the framework and the directives and directions that are set for charge approval and are set for um, what is in the public interest in British Columbia rests at the feet of this attorney general. Speaking to BC United MLA, Eleanor Sturko, we're talking about violent repeat offenders continuing to be released back onto the streets, back into the public, despite the requests from Crown attorneys. When they do ask to have them locked up, it, it, Eleanor, it sounds like there's two problems here. I mean, you've got... You got the judges who are releasing these violent offenders anyway when there is a request to keep them locked up from the Crown. And then you got a ton of cases where the Crown isn't even asking for that in the first place, right? So it's like two problems. Yeah, and you know what? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy in our court system because what ends up happening is that we hear from Crown that they're very busy. They don't have enough courtrooms. There's not enough people. But when you release people and then they keep on doing subsequent crimes, breaches, failure to appear in court, you're actually adding more and more caseload to our court system. So it's like this the self-fulfilling prophecy of not detaining people when perhaps appropriate and then filling up the courtroom with all these subsequent crimes where we've created more victims. We've added uh, more entanglement with the justice system for people that are not obviously receiving also proper rehabilitative services. And then the courts are filled up and it just keeps going and going and going. What about- and we just really... What about the jails? Are the jails are the jails full up? Do we have enough jail cells if we keep these people locked up? There's lots of vacancy at our uh, at our correctional facilities, and you know, okay. uh, I would say that you know, um, it's not only about keeping people um, behind bars. Of course, that is part of it because we do need to protect all British Columbians. But even for those that are released, have we really had a fulsome review of what's happening between crime A and crime B, particularly with violent offenses? If someone commits a violent offense, we know that they likely have other types of behavioral health issues. But, you know, what is being done in the interim when that person is out on the street? What types of supports and supervision are they truly getting between the first offense and then, unfortunately, all too often we see a subsequent violent offense happen? Yeah. Okay, let's listen to another clip of the Attorney General. So this is Nikki Sharma on yesterday's show where she says the government is trying to do something about this. Let's have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. One of the things that we're investing in and we'll be starting up in May 1st is a repeat violent offender um, intervention initiative. So this is something with 12 hubs across the province where you're really, that team will really be able to understand and circle around those violent offenders and communities. Okay, so... They're setting up these these hubs, these violent offender hubs around B.C. to put a circle around these violent offenders. 
your thoughts, Eleanor? <laughs> My thoughts are that this type of process has already been happening, um, where you know very good court cases have been uh, put forward to Crown Council. Um, I'm not sure that having a hub is necessarily going to answer the problems that we have. Um, I think that you know what ty- reviewing what types of arguments, you know, even if you have very, very good reports to Crown Council, if the arguments are not being made in court half the time, if they're not following through, um, making sure a judge is seized with the appropriate information half the time in these cases, I mean, what difference will it really make? Let's listen to another clip of the Attorney General, uh, Nikki, Nikki Sharma, here yesterday on the show, uh, calling on the federal government to step in here and make changes to the criminal code. Let's listen. If there was violence, if somebody's committed violence, and the very broadest definition of that term, um, whether it's with bladed weapons or guns or uh, bear spray in Manitoba is an issue, but any type of violence, that there should be changes to the criminal code that say that that person is held unless there's a really good reason to release them. Okay, it just sounds almost like just common sense. <laughs> You've got a violent crime committed with a weapon, you know, especially a repeat violent offender, you know. You're locked up. Sorry. What What is the holdup here? Like she says that the federal government has to fix this. Well, to be honest, some changes probably would be good, some strengthening of provisions at the federal level. But the reality is, is that even with the smokescreen that this government likes to roll out of, of Bill C-75 and saying that everything rests on our changes to our criminal code and case law, it's just not the case because even with changes, to strengthen the presumption of innocence in Canada, there has never been something that would stop our Crown Council from making arguments where appropriate to keep people in custody. And and I would argue that if a person has a repeat history of whether it's using um, any type of weapon, don't forget anything can be a weapon in the wrong hands, um, that we should have our Crown Council arguing for that person's detention, you know, or at least very, very strict supervision. And so that's just simply not happening. So for, for our attorney general to be laying this at the feet of the federal government when her directive is clearly ineffective, when we have BC prosecutors only seeking remand in half the cases where people have a violent history, yeah. failing to, to abide by those court-ordered conditions, they've proven that they cannot abide by conditions in the community through their own actions. They have a history and they have at least one outstanding warrant, meaning that they don't show up for court or have done a subsequent crime. I mean, what more does this attorney general need for her to issue an effective directive to tell her prosecution service that, look, British Columbians believe that this is in our interest of safety, that we ask every time to have these people held in custody. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. Mike, always a pleasure. All right, let's talk about airline passenger rights in Canada now. What are your rights to compensation when your flight is delayed or cancelled? Of course, this follows some of the travel chaos we've seen in the country recently. There's a driven by the COVID-19 pandemic. We continue to see some problems here. Take a look at the backlog here of complaints now uh, from airline passengers. That's around 45 thousand backlogged complaints from airline passengers in Canada now. That's about triple from what the number was about a year ago. The federal government now here saying they are strengthening airline passenger rights in Canada, removing loopholes, putting the onus on airlines here now. 
uh, to provide proof or an explanation if a flight is delayed or canceled. I've got Duncan D. standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to the Federal Transportation Minister here, Omar Al-Gabra, speaking yesterday. This will make the process much simpler and push the burden of proof onto the airlines. The changes in the legislation would also include implementing standards of treatment, like paying for your food if your flight is cancelled or delayed due, for example, to a snowstorm. Okay, so now the government's saying that the onus would be like a reverse onus here on the airlines now to, if there is a flight disruption, that the airlines would effectively have to show or prove that it was caused by safety concerns or other reasons outside of their control. And if not, the passenger would be eligible for compensation. What is the reaction from passengers? Let's listen to some of them uh, speaking at uh, YVR. Some frustrated travelers here. Do they think this will make a difference? Let's listen. It's about time. I think uh, without the government stepping in to put in some regulations, I don't think that the airlines are going to protect the passengers. The last time we went on a trip, we got delayed, and it's basically on us to prove that the airline's at fault. They keep on blaming it on COVID, so I definitely think it's a good idea. Okay, is it going to make a difference? Let's discuss now with my guest, Duncan D., former Chief Operating Officer at Air Canada. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Duncan, thanks a lot for coming on today. Can you hear him? Does he hear me okay? You, Duncan, you got your mute on? Take off your mute, Duncan. Can you hear I me now? Here. Oh, here we go. Okay, yeah, we got you now, man. We got you now. Okay, sorry. Thank you. Thank you very sorry much for coming that. on. No problem. Thank you very much for coming on today. Let's let's talk first of all about what the the current problem is. I mean, when you take a look at the backlog of complaints here, forty five thousand backlog complaints here. We've seen a lot of chaos in the sector over recently. You've talked a lot about that on the show. What is your opinion, like, on the current status, the current state of this of the, of the industry right now? Well, I mean, I think that um, the situation uh, is definitely um, difficult. Uh, if I take a look at the numbers that were um, available for flights in February and March, Vancouver Airport saw about uh, three and a half to four out of every 10 flights delayed. Seattle, uh, about a 35 minute flight away, saw about one and a half to two flights for every 10 delayed during the same period. So, um, mm. you know, Vancouver um, is not performing at the same level as Seattle is, uh, despite having virtually the same um, uh, weather systems uh, and challenges. Um, and the, the same story is repeated right across the country when you compare Toronto and Montreal to the U.S. airports nearest to them. So the situation in Canada really is not getting any better um, the only difference why we're not seeing much of it being covered is very few p people travel um, outside the summer peak and outside Christmas. So, you know, fewer people are inconvenienced. But the situation is not normal. Okay, so we have this massive backlog of complaints right now. The federal government now saying they're going to close some of these loopholes. This will strengthen passenger rights. So effectively, if there is a delay or disruption in a flight, it would be up to the airlines to show cause or prove why the disruption is not their fault. If it's something outside of their control or there's a security reason, they'll have to basically... So how is this going to work? They'll have to prove that? They can't just say it, they got to prove it? Is that is that what the change is here? 
Well, I think what's uh, happening here in Canada is we are essentially getting much closer to the European um, model of uh, air traveler rights. So Air Canada, uh, WestJet, Canadian airlines like Air Transat already um, are following those uh, uh, rules whenever they serve uh, uh, travelers in Europe. So this really doesn't change a whole lot from their perspective. What it does is it makes the system in Canada, which is a very convoluted and bureaucratic system, a lot um, easier for uh, travelers to navigate. And, you know, the 45,000 uh, backlog that we're seeing uh, at uh, um, in terms of passenger complaints are not actually complaints at the airlines. That 45,000 uh, uh, backlog is at the Canada Transportation Agency, which is a government agency. And right. the 45,000 backlog they're seeing is going to take them somewhere around two years, 18 months to two years to go through. So, you know, um, I think the situation in Canada that right now we're focusing on the complaints and the processes, process surrounding complaints is totally wrong. We should be trying everything we can to prevent those complaints, the disruptions from happening in the first place. And that's not something anyone in Canada is spending any time doing. Okay, let's have a listen to the, the airline industry here. So this is Jeff Morrison, National Airlines Council of Canada. They represent the big airlines and they don't seem they're not happy with these changes and they say this could drive up costs let's have a listen i'll get your thoughts jeff morrison here those fees those monies have to be recouped somewhere so i think there's a, a safe supposition that there, we may see an impact on fares as a result of this oh oh boy could this drive up fares duncan <laughs> well look i i mean there is only one wallet uh that uh uh, funds the air transportation system in Canada, uh, and that's the air traveler. Uh, and air travelers in Canada pay already some of the highest fees, taxes, and surcharges on the planet. Uh, and our airfares uh, aren't very far from being some of the highest on the planet. And, you know, a lot of that is as a result of the regulatory environment in which airlines operate in, in Canada. And, you know, listeners who travel, let's say, in Europe, you know, who take EasyJet or Ryanair, for less than uh, 20 pounds or less than 20 euros uh, between uh, two cities in Europe, those fares don't exist in Canada. You know, the lowest fares that you can find in Canada are probably in the $100 range uh, because of all the taxes and fees that are tacked onto the base fare. So the situation in Canada, both from a cost perspective, but also, as we've seen over the last year, from a reliability perspective, is abysmal. But, you know, we don't seem to be interested in addressing any of those issues. All we're focused in on is how do we make complaining easier and how do we make sure that complaints are handled in a much better way? That's a good thing. You know, consumers yeah. should be able to get, yeah, consumers should be able to get refunds and uh, compensation easily. But, you know, most consumers I speak to would rather be able, would rather get to their vacation on time and get home when, when they're supposed to be getting home, as opposed to waiting a few days and then getting a couple of hundred extra dollars for the, uh, in, in, in compensation for, for the inconvenience that they've um, suffered. So, oh, you yeah. know, the situation... Yeah, I mean, you, you get to an airport and you find out your flight's been delayed or canceled or you get to, in some mind-numbing lineup to go through security like we saw at one point or you're sitting on the tarmac on a flight delayed, so you're sitting in that 
that tin can aircraft for hours on a tarmac. Man, there is there's not much is worse than that. And this is what people like. Okay, let's make it easier for me to lodge a complaint. Let's get some reasonable compensation when it happens. But let's talk a little bit about the point you just made. Like, how do we? How do we prevent these problems from happening in the first place? Like, what do you think needs to be done? Look, Mike, you know, last year, the U.S. Congress passed the bipartisan infrastructure law uh, signed by the president, which committed 15 billion U.S. dollars for airport improvements. So infrastructure improvements to taxiways, runways, de-icing, things of that nature. So Seattle across the border is going to be receiving their part of that 15 billion in government money. Vancouver Airport every year, along with Toronto and Montreal, um, pays the federal government half a billion dollars every single year, which they should be reinvesting in things like the icing capacity, taxiway and runway improvements to reduce congestion, improvements to the terminal buildings to in, to enhance the passenger flow. You know, we have a situation where you've got governments around the world that have prioritized the air infrastructure of their countries, whether it's the United States, whether it's uh, Dubai in the Middle East or Singapore in Asia, or even the French government with Charles de Gaulle Airport in Europe, whereas the Canadian government treats the airline industry and air travelers like a cash cow. So, you know, on an, on an average fare that um, a, a, a traveler pays uh, to an airline, you know, they're paying upwards of 70 to $100 in fees, taxes and surcharges, you know, airport fees, security fees, GST, you know, all of these things add up. And instead of investing what's been collected out of the airline industry into the infrastructure, the government simply just takes it and, you know, spends it elsewhere. And so there, there, ha there is a reckoning happening in air transportation in this country. And I'm sorry to say that I think that what we're seeing, what we saw in 2022 is just uh, the start of many more years of travel difficulty to come unless the government and uh, industry work together to get things back on track. Duncan, thank you very much for coming on with your thoughts and analysis today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. All right, let's talk about Airbnb now. Super popular, of course, surging in popularity again right now. There are thousands of Airbnb listings in British Columbia. Some municipalities cracking down on them. Neighbors say the short-term rentals can be noisy at times and cause problems. They can displace badly needed housing for people who actually live here critics say is it time for the province to step in here let's discuss now with my guest ravi kalon bc's minister of housing minister thank you for coming on today hey mike thanks a lot thanks for having me you bet. thanks for doing it first of all let's talk a little bit about airbnb have you ever stayed in an airbnb yourself i have many times it can be great yeah no i've stayed in short-term rentals uh, i've used vrbo i've used uh uh, Airbnb and yeah, you're right. It can be great, but w we have a problem, um, and the problem is that more and more of our housing stock is starting to go towards these short-term rentals. Uh, many of these units uh, remain empty for most of the month, uh, but the owners can recoup the cost even if it's uh, rented over a few days. And and so what that means is more and more people are being displaced from housing opportunities, and this is 
something that, uh, you know, cities and, and states and provinces across the North America are trying to grapple with and certainly something that we've committed to uh, taking on part of our housing strategy. Okay, right now, is it municipal responsibility to regulate these? Yeah, it, it is, and, and that's where the challenge lies. I mean, I've been hearing from local governments who say, we have no line of sight, we have rules, we don't even know if they're being followed, we have no real teeth in, uh, in, in our bylaws. Uh, it's really up to some of the companies or the individuals to follow the rules. Uh, and some jurisdictions don't have the rules and they don't have the capacity to put rules in place. And so it's a, it's a real mixed bag. You know, uh, when, when uh, short-term rentals came on the scene, uh, a lot of tourism-related communities would say, hey, you know what, this is great. We, we yeah. need this. This is great for tourism. And now I've got those communities coming back to me saying, you know, it was great uh, and they're still great, but now we don't have anywhere for our workers to live. And uh, we have a worker shortage for supporting our tourism operations. So, um, you know, I think there needs to be a balance, and that's what we're going to be working on. We've got right now, it seems like, a patchwork of rules and regulations around the province with different rules in different municipalities, and notably cities like Vancouver, Kelowna, Victoria, some others have restricted these short-term rentals. Your basic... The the rule in some of these communities, you're not allowed to use the a suite like a hotel room, right? Like you're allowed to list your place on Airbnb, but only if you're the principal resident in some of these municipalities, right? You can't you can't rent it out like a hotel room every single day of the year. Well, certainly that's how Airbnb started um, was on that premise. But you know there is a, you're you're bang on. It's a patchwork of ideas and policies yeah. across British Columbia and across. Canada. And, and what we hear consistently from local governments is we don't even know who's operating. We don't know if they're following the rules. We have no enforcement tools if somebody is breaking the rules. Uh, you know, like communities like Salt Spring, they, they, they have a rule, no short-term rentals. And now everyone knows there are short-term rentals available in Salt Spring Island. Uh, and, and they have, you know, people who are living in encampments because they can't find housing. And so, you know, this is the challenge, I think, when you're in a housing crisis is Every unit that can be made available needs to be available for people. At the same time, we need to ensure that uh, tourism communities in particular have the opportunity to continue to have this important uh, uh, tourism opportunity. Is there also a problem? Have you heard any complaints about some Airbnb rentals that are basically causing problems in, in a building? Like you've got a suite or a house that's like a party house or a party suite. I've heard that before. People can complain about noise coming from some of these Airbnbs. Have you heard that? Oh, yeah, that, that, is, a, that is a constant. And, uh, you know, in every community, uh, everybody knows of, of the, the few houses that are set up that way. Um, and, uh, you know, th- that's a different challenge altogether. And that's something local governments are trying to grapple with. Well, you know, what happens when they're having... Uh, multiple complaints uh, in the neighborhood or uh, concerns in the neighborhood around parties, et cetera, how do those get dealt with? And, uh, and right now, many communities don't have any policies in place uh, to, to enforce any of their rules. And so uh, that, that's what we said we would do. UBCM, uh, we uh, partnered with them last uh, year to uh, start consulting with communities on what their challenges are, where they're seeing issues, and Part of that is going to advise us on how we move forward. Speaking to BC Housing Minister Ravi Kailan about Airbnb and other short-term rentals, 
will the provincial government step in here? So, so Minister, is that the plan? Is the province going to step in and regulate regulate these short-term rentals, especially Airbnb province-wide? Yeah, no, we are. We're going to step in. We're going to. Uh, we're right now doing some more engagement with local governments on what that could look like. But our our idea is to do two things. One, to ensure that there's more tools available to local governments to uh, enforce uh, their rules. And second, find ways for more of our housing stock to come back to people who need housing as opposed to, um, you know, being rented out for a couple of days in a month to, to make a few bucks. And so uh, we're in a housing crisis. Every unit that's available needs to come back on as the best we can, and, and that's what we're doing. Okay, when you talk about you, you want to make tools available for municipalities to better police this, what, what, could, what could some of those tools include? Well, the biggest challenge we hear is data. Um, you know, communities can set rules, but when they have no idea who actually got the business license, who's uh, on the platforms uh, renting their places out, um, it's, it's really hard for them to, you know, actually enforce any of their rules. And then if somebody does break the rules, well, what are the recourse actions that they can actually take? And so these are the concerns that we've been hearing from local government. And uh, so we're at the table right now. We're working with folks to say, okay, what does that mean? You know, in order for us to be successful, what tools do we need to have in place to do that? And, and we're learning from other jurisdictions. You know, as I highlighted, we're not the only ones. If you look around the world, uh, short-term rentals, there are conversation happening everywhere. And many jurisdictions are using different mechanisms to try to get at this. And we're basically doing a jurisdictional scan to say, all right, what's happening in other parts of the world? What could actually work here? Uh, and then having conversation with local government saying, is this something that uh, would, would work here in British Columbia? Okay. Do you think there should be a public database available for anyone to look at? Like anytime you set up an Airbnb or a, a Verbo or another one of these short-term rentals that you have to register and disclose and it'd be a public database that anyone could look at, like the neighbors could check it out and say, oh yeah, okay, there's an Airbnb in our neighborhood here. Is is that something that's potentially on the table? Well, we we know that there needs to be more work on collecting that type of data for local governments. Whether that would be available to the public, Mike, I can't say. You know, there's so many privacy rules uh, that we have to follow, and, and that's something that I certainly haven't canvassed with the privacy commissioner. Um, but I, I would say that local governments have been telling us that they need to be able to see that. Local governments tell us that that's the type of information that they want to be better informed in the decision-making around where they want these types of units and, and where they think they're not appropriate. And so we'll be doing that work uh, over, the, over the coming months. Okay, what about the the other side of the coin here in the the tourism sector, which is so important to us here in British Columbia? And, and we started our conversation just acknowledging that, you know, you've used Airbnb. My family has used Airbnb on vacations. We've had some wonderful experiences with it. People love it, right? They love, they want to come to British Columbia. They would love to live in some of these places or, or in for a short term for a visit or a holiday. Is is that a concern? Like, what about the tourism sector? Aren't some of these? It's not all bad, right? No, and and this is the this is the balance we have to find in this. Is that uh, you know we hear from tourism dependent communities saying, hey, you know, this is a part of the mix that we have here. But at the same time, if you have a ski hill and you can't find anybody to work at it, uh, but you have a lot of uh, you know short term rentals in your community. Uh, it, it, does that benefit anybody? You know, if you can't operate your li- list, uh, you know, how is that 
productive for the community. And so that's where I think the balance needs to be. And, and certainly we know from the hotel industry, uh, they also, uh, you know, uh, feeling a lot of pressure in that sense that they don't want to invest more money in new spaces when they know that this is out here. But at the mm-hmm. same time, they have to pay uh, additional fees to have commercial licenses. And in some cases, we have people who operate multiple units like hotels and don't have to pay the fees. And so there is a, a, a um, I guess, unfairness when it comes to business practices as well that we're definitely mindful of. Okay, last question for you, Minister. When is all this coming? When are you planning to step in here? Well, we're working actively on it. As you know, part of our housing strategy, we've got a lot of things coming this fall. Uh, This fall is going to be very jam-packed. My hope is to have short-term rentals either this fall or early in the new year. Uh, It just depends on how fast the work can get done. Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Anytime, Mike. Thanks uh, for having me. Let's talk about the federal civil service strike now. Day six of this huge strike. More than 100,000 unionized federal civil servants off the job here. We talked earlier about some of the delays in passport applications in the country right now. Other impacts of the strike as well. Take a look at the issues here. The two sides apart on money. The union looking for a 13.5% wage hike over three years the Justin Trudeau government offering a 9% wage increase over three years. That, you know, they're far apart there, but not that far. You think they could maybe bridge that divide here? What about this one, though, now? The union seeking the right to work from home permanently. Like, put that in the contract. A lot of workers, of course, transition to working from home. They're working remotely during the pandemic. The pandemic's over, isn't it? Isn't it time to get your butt back into work here, back to the office? You've got the union here saying they want this remote work option written right into their contract here. Got Richard Johnson standing by to discuss. Have a listen to this. This is Sue Moser, striking civil servant. Here she is talking on the picket line. Have a listen. Remote work and telework has been proven to be very productive. I think uh, we are able to do our jobs remotely. We're looking to have that clarified in our collective agreement so that we have some say in whether we come into the office or not, um, how many hours we come in, where we come in, um, that sort of thing. Okay, well, isn't it the, the boss's responsibility to tell you where you're supposed to work? Let's discuss this now with my guest, Richard Johnson. Richard is an employment lawyer, Ascent Employment Law. Very pleased to welcome him. Richard, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it, Mike. Okay, when someone is working remotely during COVID, I mean, lots of people did that, right? Does this get down to, like, once the pandemic's over, which it largely is now, do you you still have the right to keep working from home, or do you have to go back to back to the office if the job orders you if the boss orders you back? I'm going to give you an answer that uh, is not going to surprise you from a lawyer. It depends, but at this point yeah, in time, given that given that months have gone by since COVID was, and I'm using air quotes, done or over, it yeah. becomes more and more a term of employment if you let that be the status quo. Right. So if someone's been working for many, many months, maybe even a couple of years or more from home, can the employee then argue that, well, hang on a second here, the conditions of my employment have changed. I'm doing the job and it's been going fine for a couple of years, so you can't change it now. 
That's right. And the further we get out from COVID, that can no longer be the reason for the remote working environment. Clearly it works. People have been doing it since COVID ended. And so it becomes more and more a term of employment that the employer shouldn't just go and change, you know, on a whim. Okay. It's interesting to see that this has become such a, a key issue in this huge strike. To your knowledge, when it comes to union contracts, these abilities to work from home, the work working remotely, is that typically written into labor agreements or is this something new? This is something new and this is something that really came up during COVID as a result of the pandemic. And so it is an, an issue that wasn't in collective agreements prior to COVID. Now, we're going to expect that they're going to work their way through this. And then in collective agreements going forward, the negotiation process has to include any remote working environments or arrangements. What happens right now? Let's say you've been working at home for a while. Your boss phones you or sends you an email and says, look, time to come back to the office now. We'll see you Monday back in the office. Can your boss force you to go back like who has the who has the hammer here can the boss force you to go back to work back to the office they can certainly try but first they have to be reasonable and so at this point if they were to come and say you know it's the 25th of april we want you back in on monday no dice i don't think that that's going to fly because it is a huge upheaval on the employee and it's worked for months and months if not years so i think the employee has it on this one in terms of you know being able to continue to work remotely Okay, let's look at it from the boss's point of view, though. As an employer, how do you know if your employee is actually working? If they're working from home, they're not in the office, how do you know they're working? How do you know they're not slacking off? I love this question, Mike, and I, I will break it down into power and control uh, and trust. And so these issues revolve around control and trust. you got to trust your people, and if you can't, that's a bigger issue. Uh, employers will move to things like will consider key keystroke software or regular check-ins or monitoring employee emails, et cetera, to try to make sure people aren't gaming the system or taking advantage. In my opinion, there are ways to make sure that your people are doing their work, have regular check-ins, be human and maybe reach out and have calls, set up meetings over virtual platforms like Zoom or Teams. There are ways to get around it without your people feeling mistrusted. Speaking of Richard Johnson, Ascent Employment Law, talking about the federal civil service strike. The union wants that right to work from home written right into the contract here. Some of the things on this remote work issue I've, I've been wondering about, and one of them is an injury claim, and I know you deal with a lot, a lot of that kind of stuff as an employment lawyer. What happens if you're injured on the job, but you're working, you're working from home? Are you still covered? Generally, yeah, if you're carrying out your duties, your remote work environment, whether it's your kitchen or your you know, home office, that becomes your workspace. And so we are seeing this come up in terms of work safe claims. People slip and fall maybe in their home office or something happens. That can be a WCB claim and it can be just as ah. valid as or getting injured on the job at work. Okay, very interesting. Let's play another clip here from Sue Moser from the picket line here, striking civil servant. She's one of the picket captains here in the strike. And she outlines why the union wants this work from home right written permanently into the contract. And listen to the point she makes here that this people want this, the workers want this. And if you don't give it to them, maybe the government starts losing qualified civil servants. Have a listen. 
The federal government needs to step up and, and realize that because we will lose people, our younger generation that has options. They don't get the kind of working conditions that they're expecting or that they can get from another department or another area. Our, our workforce is going to shrink. Okay, I wonder if the if the federal government has considered that the, the Ottawa seems to be taking a hard line on this issue here in this dispute. But do you think she has a point, Richard, there that if you don't allow workers to have this work from home option, maybe they maybe they just quit. Maybe they go somewhere else to work. I do. It's going to be a huge issue in terms of attracting and retaining talent. And so I think there is a valid point to be made. You can't pick and choose when you're going to work. And so I think the employer has the right to say we need some consistent terms. Um, you're either remote or you're not, but yeah, you've got to be, um, you got to be offering terms that employees are going to take. Otherwise you're not going to have staff. Yeah. When you, when they talk about, we want this written into the contract, man, that would be some interesting language you'd like to see. I'd like to see in an employment contract or a union contract here. How did, how do they get around that? Like, do they say it, like who would have the right here to demand this? Are they, are they saying like the worker should have the right? I, I want to work from home and that's it. And there's. And I'm getting my way on it. They want that written in the contract. What kind of language do you think they could potentially negotiate here on this? It's going to be necessary to, to define it by job or band. And so one of the things that's important is realizing not all jobs can be done remotely. And so for a subset of positions, and they might outline in collective agreement, you know, for these types of positions, if an employee is going to work remotely, that's acceptable, subject to approval from management. And then they can delineate what that looks like and have a remote work policy, for example, that will apply to how that will all unfold in the day to day. OK, first. OK, last question for you, Richard, for someone who is working at home and they have expenses, they've had home office expenses. Who pays for that? This is a great issue that came up during COVID. You can't foist your business expenses on your employees. And so we're advising employers that you should be providing allowances if people are using their internet or their office space for business use. And also make sure that you're setting people up with the proper tools like the desk and, and computer equipment. That Those are expenses you shouldn't be foisting under, uh, under the Employment Standards Act. You can't foist those on the employee. You gotta pay them as the employer. Richard, we're following this one closely. We'll see how it works out. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about the big courtroom showdown in show business right now. It's between pop star Ed Sheeran and the estate of the late, great Marvin Gaye, two great artists for sure. Here's the question. Did Ed Sheeran copycat Marvin Gaye? This copyright infringement lawsuit, this is happening right now as we speak in a Manhattan courtroom. Ed Sheeran's lawyer right now in court is saying, denying that they, his client stole this from Marvin Gaye. But the attorneys from the other side making opening statements right now. So here's the question. Did Ed Sheeran steal this hit song from Marvin Gaye? 2014 hit Thinking Out Loud by Ed Sheeran. That won the Grammy Award for Best Song that year. Is it actually a ripoff? of Marvin Gaye's soul classic from 1973. Let's get it on. I've got patent lawyer John Rizvi standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen here. So take a listen. You can decide for yourself here. Let's listen to the two songs side by side. 
Did Ed Sheeran copy Marvin Gaye here? Let's listen. Could still fool us hard at 23. And I'm thinking about how. And if you feel like I feel, baby, then come on. Oh, come on. So, honey, now. Okay, it's got a similar backbeat there for sure, doesn't it? Let's discuss now with my guest, John Risby, the patent professor. John is a lawyer specializing in patents and trademarks. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, John. Yes, always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, John. It's great to have you here again. What what do you think of this case here now? Wow. Well, we're we're finding more and more of these, um, and it's it's a little surprise if you look at... uh, you know, but one of of Ed's defenses that he's he's kind of mentioned before, he said there's only 12 musical notes, and uh, and that you know in any given year, and this is not from him, this is just uh, my research. In any given year, there are any given day, there are 60,000 songs being released on on Spotify, for example. Yeah. Now, to put that in yeah. perspective, in 1952, there were 144 songs all year. So the you know part of the question is there's uh, there, there's these common rhythms the common chord progressions and when you know when can that be entitled to copyright protection and when does it in fact go too far and end up um, you know trying to trying to protect something that's not protectable uh, and that's a, it's it's difficult for lawyers and even musicians to get clarity because a lot of these cases end up settling out of court so we don't really get precedence or a, a judgment and uh, i'm excited to see that this has made it to trial because that's that doesn't happen all that often and i'm hoping that it does not settle so that we actually get uh, a, a decision that helps yeah. put some clarity yeah. on, on on copyright law yeah no it's very interesting ed sheeran himself possibly set to testify in this case he's in court right now as we speak in, in manhattan is this case gets underway today, John. Are these cases difficult to prove? Like, are they often successful, or are they usually unsuccessful? Well, they, again, they, we, we, de- we define successful. Like, I think what ends up happening, unfortunately, is that uh, the defendants end up settling simply because, and that's why there is a lot of, of criticism, uh, because it almost seems like a, a shakedown of sorts, uh, yeah. because... Uh, they they settle because of the nuisance value. Sometimes, sometimes the worry about the negative publicity uh, be, that an artist receives from you know when there is a public claim of uh, of that their work is is plagiarized. So they hope to settle it and have it quietly go away. So we we actually will never know the full extent, the full numbers on on how often uh, these claims are made because a lot of them don't even make it to an actual lawsuit being filed. Yeah, did you think they can get to trial? Do you think the songs sound sound the same? Let's listen to a little bit of it again here, Tim. Let's play a little bit of it, not the whole thing, but just play that first part of it again. Let's listen again here, okay? Could still fool us hard at twenty three, and I'm thinking about. Okay. All right. Okay, John. 
All right, John, what do you think of that? Like, I can certainly hear the sort of the backbeat there is similar, but how does it sound to you? Like, when your ear, what does your ear test tell you here? Does it sound the same? Yeah, so it's it's so funny. I mean, even as uh, as, as a copyright expert, as an intellectual property attorney, um, I'm no expert in music, and and the, <laughs> this jury, it, you know, this jury is going to have uh, a lot of experts speaking to them. There's actually, you know, specialists, musicologists, they're called that that talk about the difference between rhythm and melody and harmony and chord progression. Uh, to answer your question, to me they sound similar, but is is you know are the similarities because of of uh, common chord progressions that a lot of music has? I don't feel uh, qualified to to address that, um, and certainly this is one of the concerns musicians have, is that if me as a copyright attorney, if I'm having uh, hesitating. You know, this is a jury. Many times you'll have a jury where, you know, the last time some of the members, they, you know, maybe they played the recorder in the second grade and they've never picked up a musical instrument, never written a song, and musicians, uh, like, they, they have this concern. And maybe that's why these cases are settling because they don't trust yeah. their future to uh, a jury of 12 that, that you know, not not of peers, not of other musicians, uh, but just just 12 members of the public, uh, regardless of their, their musical background. Okay, well, the jury will have the final say on this one, I guess. John, thank you for coming on today. We're going to follow this one closely here. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Yeah, you bet. John Rizvi there. John is a trademark lawyer. That case underway right now in Manhattan. Tim French is a producer here in the show. I, I, no, Tim, you were listening to those two songs. What did you think? Is, that, is this a bit of a bank shot for you, or do you think it's a do you think it's a ripoff? Well, I'll admit that I have my reservations about this lawsuit. I don't think Ed actually has plagiarized Marvin Gaye, but I do think that it's highlighting a conversation that needs to be had in the music industry, and that's what part of a song can you really claim as your own, like your brainchild? Lyrics, they're pretty concrete. You know, if you wrote it and no one's written it before, like there's lots of um, plagiarism checkers online, but it's hard at least in my opinion, to lay claim on things like a beat or a chord progression, things that are, you know, standard things in most music textbooks. I think it's really difficult to, to say that is yours. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. Stream on Stack TV.